Zealand Vegan Podcast, episode 74. I'm your host, Elizabeth Collins, and this week I have a very, very, very special guest on the show. It is absolutely my pleasure to welcome back Professor Gary L. Francione to the show. Professor Francione is a distinguished professor of law and the Nicholas de B. Katzenbach Scholar of Law and Philosophy at Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey. He has been the author of several books, including Animals as Property, Rain Without Thunder, The Ideology of the Animal Rights Movement, Introduction to Animal Rights, Your Child or the Dog, Animals as Persons, Essays on the Abolition of Animal Exploitation, and the latest book, which is what we are going to be talking about today, The Animal Rights Debate, Abolition or Regulation, co-authored with Professor Robert Garner, the Chair of the Political Department at the University of Leicester in England. Welcome to the show, Gary. It's great to have you back. It is wonderful to be back, Elizabeth. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm dying to, to um, talk to you about this book, and we've got a couple of other things that um, that we were going to talk about. But right. um, talking about the book, first of all, um, I feel that I um, perhaps don't understand um, quite what, what the heck is going on with, with Professor Garner, and um, I was hoping that you could um, help me out, because when I started reading, I loved your essay, and um, then I started reading Professor Garner's, and it seemed to me that I was opening a manifesto on why animals um, should be used and enslaved, and they don't have a right to life, and it was very, very hard for me to understand, because I was actually under the illusion that the book was going to be written by, on one side, a person who, th- who yourself, who says animals, they're not ours to use, they're not ours to use as property, and the way to deal with that is abolition. And I was assuming on the other side we'd have a man who would say, animals are not ours to use, you know, we should abolish use, however the way to get there is regulation. But then when I started reading his writing, I said, what am I dealing with here? This is a, somebody who's, who is, is writing a speciesist essay, and I got very confused and angry. All right, well, um, let me try to uh, uh, clarify it, at least as I perceive it. Um, Robert is a new welfareist. Uh, he doesn't like that expression. He uses protectionist. But, but basically, um, let's take a step back. In 1996, when I wrote Rain Without Thunder, I talked about new welfareists as being basically people who wanted to abolish animal exploitation, but who thought that welfare reform was the way to get to uh, the abolition of animal exploitation. Uh, in in the years since I wrote in the de- in the ten ten years no actually more I guess fifteen years since I wrote that book, the new welfareism has changed and it's actually become more reactionary than it was in 1995 when I wrote Rain Without Thunder in that. Many people that I would identify as new welfareists are are people who um, don't necessarily want to see the abolition of all animal exploitation. That is, they think that it's all right to use animals under some in some circumstances. They just think we ought to use many, 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 many fewer animals, and that we ought to treat them much, much, much better. Uh, and I think that's where Robert fits. Um, I, I don't. I mean, I don't think that. Uh, well, I mean. I think that's where Robert fits. I, I hate to, to characterize him uh, beyond the way he's characterized himself in the book, and all I can give you is my impressions of his position. But I think what he's saying – in certain respects, Robert is adopting uh, and defending Peter Singer's position that uh, it's all right for us to use animals per se because killing them 
is not per se a harm because like Singer and many other people, uh, Garner believes that animal minds are different from human minds and that animals don't care that we use them. They only care about how we use them. Now, this goes back 200 years to Jeremy Bentham. Uh, it's an idea that was, um, you know, it, at the foundation of the animal welfare movement is this idea that it's all right for us to use animals because they don't care that we uh, exploit them in particular ways. They only care about how we treat them. That's an idea that goes back, you know, to, to the to the to the to the, the dawn of the animal welfare movement. And it's an idea that, that continues through the 19th century to, through the 20th century. Peter Singer picks that idea up in animal liberation uh, in the 1970s. And he basically, I mean, he basically reasserts Bentham's position that it's all right for us to use animals. We just have to take into consideration their interests in not suffering and give those interests a great deal more weight than we normally do. Now, we're, we're, Robert Garner departs from Singer is Singer does not believe in in rights as a, as a moral philosopher a right a, let me say this a right is simply a way of protecting an interest um, in, and and you you can protect an interest in different ways one of which is to protect it with a right which is basically a stronger sort of protection that doesn't allow you to ignore the the interest simply because good you know good consequences will ensue to some other group of of humans or non-humans. Humans. And and so that's what a right is. And 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 Singer doesn't believe in rights because he's a utilitarian, which basically means he thinks that was what what right or wrong is in any particular circumstance is determined by consequences and consequences alone. And and so Garner is does not defend a utilitarian or consequentialist position. He believes in rights. He believes that, that animals have interests in not suffering and that their interests in not suffering should be strongly protected with these, with these devices that we call rights. He believes that. Um, but where it gets confusing, well, there are two, there, there, as I see it, there are at least two problems with his position. One is he says that animals have a right not to suffer unacceptably. And as I point out in the book in a number of spots, I don't, I don't really understand what that means. And neither and I think does that he, a, by the way, because well, he never yeah, addressed I mean, your arguments against it. I'm sorry for interrupting, but many times in the debate at the end, you said to him, you know, what's up with that? And he still couldn't really tell you um, because he doesn't really have anything to go on anyway because the animals that we use are being made to suffer to such horrific extremes, even those supposedly being protected by these welfare improvements. So he can't really, you know, I, and he, you even try to get, to get him to imagine scenarios and he keeps saying, well, I really don't know yet. We really don't know yet. Right. Well, at some at, at various points, yes, you're right. I mean, it, it, I I do think I do think it's fair to say that um, that uh, he, he was having a difficult time dealing with that particular question about what acceptable means. But at at, at various times, he seems to suggest that. Any suffering at all for a non-essential purpose. For example, he he talks in his essay. He talks about uh, if we were to get rid of uh, factory farming, we might have a different situation with respect to the use of animals for food. And I I point out that there's still going to be suffering there. And he eventually gets to a point where it seems to me that he's saying that we shouldn't be using animals at all for food if if they're going to suffer. Uh, and as I point out to him, there's no such thing as use that doesn't involve suffering because uh, imprisoning an animal causes the animal distress, even if the animal's not feeling any physical pain. I mean, there's pain, there's suffering, there's distress. There are three different concepts. And that to the extent that one says an animal has a right not to suffer, using that word suffer as sort of an umbrella term for pain, 
you know, the, the actual feeling of pain, physical pain, uh, suffering in some, some uh, you know, or distress, uh, which is sort of an acute form of suffering. Um, you know, to, to the extent that you say, well, animals have a right not to suffer, well, then you can't use them at all. And because there's always going to be some suffering. And, and so, you know, he, he goes back and forth on what acceptable means. And to some degree, it, to, at some points he says, well, you know, I don't really know. And, you know, we have to balance. And at some other points he says, well, no, they have, their right to suffer means that they, you know, you know, that they shouldn't be suffering at all. In which case, as I point out to him, that means you can't use them at all because there's always going to be suffering. But where he and I have a really sharp dispute is his defending Bentham's notion and Singer's notion that animals don't have an interest in continuing to live because their minds are different from ours. And, and you know, again, I, I agree that animals think differently uh, from the way – and again, when you use animals, you know, you're talking about like, you know – such a wide variety, species, yeah, so many, so many different species of animals. But you know, I mean, I, but I agree that that animals that use, we are the only animals that use symbolic communication, i.e., language. You know, we use we use this this thing called language. And I think you know, my guess is is that our concepts are probably very different from the concepts that animals have, uh, any animals have that don't use language, and we're the only ones who do use language. So therefore, I'm willing to accept that our minds are different from the minds of all other animals. And then, <laughs> and then the next step is to say, who cares? Why is, I mean, you know, that may be relevant. That may be relevant if I have, if I'm sitting here with a calculus textbook, and I've only got one, and I say, well, <laughs> gee, I give the calculus textbook to my dog, or should I give it to my neighbor's kid who's very interested in mathematics and, and in calculus and things like that? Well, well, I'll give it to the you know I mean I mean if I if I were to, if, if if I were to say if I were to say well you know I'm I'm agonizing Elizabeth I'm having a tough time this afternoon trying to figure out should I give this calculus text to my next door neighbor's child or should I give it to my dog and and um uh, and now now you know I should say in defense that I one of the rescued animals that I live with is a border collie, and she probably knows more calculus than most. Than most I do. But, That's uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. She's so smart; it's scary. <laughs> but, um, but, but, um, so you know, it, it, yeah. I mean, it, the the fact that animals have a different, you know, that their conceptual framework is different because they don't use symbolic communication, and we do. So what? I mean, that may be relevant for some purposes. Like if you're trying to, you know, give out a, a, a calculus textbook, you don't give it to a dog; you give it to the kid who can use the the, the calculus textbook. But but that's not the question. We're not asking the question who's going to get the calculus textbook. We're asking is it all right to use that being as, you know, as, as, a, as a resource, as an un, unconsenting subject in a biomedical experiment for food, for entertainment, whatever. And in that, in that sense, if we, if, we, if we try to make the analogy um, using humans, we can see how this works. I mean if I were to say to you, well, I've got a calculus textbook. Should I give it to – my neighbor's kid who's very good at, 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 you know, maths, or should I give it to, uh, my other neighbor's child who is severely mentally disabled? And you would, you would probably say, well, you know, I mean, if your if your other child, if your other neighbor's child who has a disability, a cognitive disability is not going to be able to understand the calculus textbook, then it's a waste to give it to that, to that child. And I would agree with you. But if I asked a different question, should I use my neighbor's child, the, the one who's good at mathematics, as, as, a, as a, a forced organ donor uh, and just rip out his or her kidneys and liver and everything else and plant them into other people, uh, transplant them into other people? Or should I use my, my other neighbor's cognitively disabled child 
then all of a sudden the question becomes a very different different question. Yeah, you should use and neither. And it, it, use neither. The, the, the sad thing about the thing is like this guy, the, these arguments are creating such a huge problem. I mean, if only, you know, if only people would just be interested in not harming at all, especially if there's any doubt, then we wouldn't even be there. I mean, these people are going so far out of their way to try to, to, to justify harming animals by saying that it's not harming them. Like, for example, he says... Um, I mean, what he does say is that, uh, reading from his book, he says um, that it, it, although it is wrong to kill an animal, it is not as great a wrong as killing a human. So they're being magnanimous. I mean, like, how magnanimous of you to say, well, it may be wrong to a certain extent to kill an animal, but it's just not as great a wrong. So as long as it's not as great of a wrong than to killing us wonderful human creatures, which are we are the superior beings, then we can justify almost anything and he says um, the thing that I really want you to help me out with Gary which because you have to forgive me I don't think I understand the word properly he says similar arguments employed to justify the claim that it is a greater harm to take a human life than to take an animal life might be used to deny an animal to deny animals a right to liberty Um, deny their right to liberty I mean he understands there's a right to liberty and he's quite willing to deny it to non-humans and he says one interpretation would be that humans because because humans are autonomous, liberty is intrinsically valuable to us. That is, it is valuable irrespective of the benefits, such as avoidance of frustration, that derive from it. For animals, on the other hand, liberty is valuable precisely because of the goods deriving from it. Help me out, Gary. What does he mean? Well, I, I, I mean, I agree with you. I, I agree with you that um, I mean, what he's saying in essence is that um, I. I have an interest in autonomy. Uh, you have an interest in autonomy uh, to, to do basically what we want to do and to go where we want to go, etc. But animals don't have that, that, that sense of autonomy. He... I, I, I agree with you. I, and I say that in the book. I say I, I have no idea where you're getting that from because I, I disagree. I mean, I, I, but, you know, look, you made two points. Let's go back to the first one about when he says that, that the fact that animals are different means and i'm just like looking at one of my dogs who is this dog um it's probably about 16 or 17 years old i don't know we got him he was he was found um living under a, an abandoned car in a very very bad area of the city and um and uh uh and we've had him for a long time now and he's sort of wandering around and it's absolutely uh he, he seems in sort of a very happy little fog but he's clearly in some sort of little fog uh but as i say a very happy little fog and he loves he, he he loves eating and playing and stuff like that but he clearly is old and but he likes to walk you can probably hear his I nails hear on him, the floor yeah. uh, and he and he clearly has a, an interest in autonomy he doesn't want if i were to grab him and put him uh in the corner of the room he would be unhappy about that he would wish to move around the room and to satisfy his interests in you know going over and uh, i think he's licking a part of the floor now i don't know what he's doing but i mean he, you know he has an interest in doing that sort of thing so like you know he I clearly has an interest in autonomy but but you made an, uh, another point the the earlier point you made was that robert says that all other things being equal it's worse to kill a human than it is to kill a non-human and and what I try to do in the third you know in the in the third part of the book because you know the uh, uh, um, for those people who haven't read the book uh, in the first part of the book I present the abolitionist argument second part of the book he he presents a regulationist argument third part of the book we debate with each other and what I try to do in the third part of the book is get him to answer the question is killing a smart person 
worse than killing somebody who's cognitively disabled. And, and you know, he doesn't really want to answer that question. And as a matter of fact, when I really get him in the corner on that, he says, well, um, the cognitive differences between uh, even a even a, a a very disabled human and and a non-human are so great that you really can't make that you know you can't ask that question sensibly. And the answer is that's just simply wrong because there are some people who are so cognitively impaired that you know and there I'm not I'm not talking about people who are in a persistent vegetative state. I'm not talking about that's that level of impairment. I'm talking about people who are so severely mentally disabled, but they're not in a persistent vegetative state. They are far less cognitively able than a chimpanzee or a dog or a mouse. So, I mean, you know, it, it, the, the idea that, that, um, that, there, you know, that, that, that you can't identify humans who are not, you know, all humans, however cognitively impaired, are cognitively superior uh, to, to animals in, in just as an empirical matter. That's simply as an empirical matter wrong. But even if it were true, um, what different, I mean, what cash value does it have? In terms of the more, you know, the what moral cash value does it have? And the answer is, I don't think it has any. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, I don't really see. As I say, cognitive abilities may be relevant for all sorts of purposes. Um, every year, you know, at the end of the semester, I give my students grades, and you know, and I make j- judgments about uh, about their, you know, their, their at least their performance in my particular class. And so I'm, you know, and and so 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 making those sorts of distinctions becomes relevant in a university when you're giving people grades. Now, you know, we could argue about whether that's a good idea, whether we should get rid of that whole system, and that's a whole other question. But but you know, we that's the system we have, and so you know, making cognitive distinctions may be relevant for some purposes, but, but that the purposes we're talking about are using animals as food, using them as biomedical exper- you know, subjects and biomedical experiments, using them for circuses, zoos, and rodeos, using them for leather and wool and silk and fur and all that sort of nonsense. And when we're asking those questions, then it becomes clear to me that cognitive abilities don't mean jack. They don't. They don't have any sort of moral relevance at all. When, when you ask the question, who should we use as a forced organ donor? Who should we use as a, a non-consenting subject in a painful biomedical experiment? Who should who should we eat? Who should we use in a circus, zoo, or rodeo? And and um, you know, then it seems to me that the intelligence question and the cognitive abilities question is is irrelevant. Who cares? As a matter of fact, I I, I could make an argument um, that we actually have stronger obligations to the more vulnerable, that the, that the more vulnerable you are, uh, whether, you know, as a child or somebody who's cognitively impaired or an elderly person or somebody who's like, whatever, that we have even stronger obligations to those people. But we certainly don't have weaker obligations to those people when it comes to using them as resources. I mean, and, 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 and so, so on one hand, Robert wants to avoid Singer's idea because Singer basically says, yeah, you know, somebody who's cognitively impaired is not, is I mean, Singer would say use that them. a human use them. Go for it. Would say, yeah, he, well, he would say somebody who's cognitively impaired has lesser moral value than somebody who's not cognitively impaired. And I would say to that, nonsense. I regard that as nonsense. I regard that sort of thinking as um, terrifying. Uh, well, it, it, yeah. I mean, again, and I don't want I don't want to say that. Um, I mean, well, I regard it as terrifying, and I regard it as neo-Nazi. And I'm not saying that Singer, and I certainly don't want. I certainly don't want to say that um, <laughs> that Singer is a neo-Nazi. I'm not. I am not saying that. I am saying that that is the sort of thinking, that idea that people who are cognitively impaired 
are worth less or people who have, you know, particular people who are cognitively uh, uh, differently abled, that those people are worth less morally when we sit down to try to figure out, you know, how we, you know, how we divide up the moral universe. That, that strikes me as, as, as really scary sort of thinking. I'm not saying that you can't say, look, I've got one calculus textbook left. I'm not going to give it to the person who's cognitively impaired. I understand that and I agree with it. And so would you and so would everybody else. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about using people in biomedical experiments or deciding, you know, it, who, who lives and who dies. The idea that you can make distinctions, uh, moral distinctions based on these cognitive abilities strikes me as the, you know, the exact sort of thinking that sort of leads you to say, well, it's all right for us to use uh, uh, people who are cognitively impaired as subjects in biomedical experiments. I just think that that's a bad way to th- look at the world. It is, absolutely. because look at what it's led to. We're using yes. all other species. Um, and, you know, humans, yeah, exactly. some humans are. So I that's the thing that I can't quite fathom is that um you know it's funny um in the end of the book in the debate book it was very cathartic for me and it helped me a lot because you really took him to task every time i read something i would be oh my gosh you know this is unbelievable and you and you addressed every single one of them in the debate in the back of the book and there was he couldn't um respond and you know he says it's funny he says this is in one of the debates he says um He's talking about the enhanced sentience position is probably ethically more desirable, which I can't. I don't think we, you and I, can talk about it. His enhanced sentience position, because I think we won't. I don't know if it's even worth trying to analyze. But he says politically or strategically, I would probably opt for the sentience position. So he even has like levels of sentience that he bases his judgments. Well, well, well actually, I, I think I think the distinction he's making there, and I, I agree with you. I find it confusing, and I I, I do find it confusing. Um, he's distinguishing between the sentience, what he calls the sentience position, which is that animals have a right not to suffer um, unacceptably. And that that animals have a right not to suffer at all, which would rule out their use. And that becomes very, very close. That comes closer to my position for different reasons, but it comes closer well, to my position. It would come closer to your position because the only way to resolve it would to be to take the end result right. of your position, which is abolition. That's the only – That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. But, 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 you know, look, the bottom line is Robert is trying to – come up with and i have to say this i mean i have to say i disagree with him he didn't convince me i probably didn't convince him but but the bottom line is robert presents a much better theoretically much better i don't think it's successful but i think it's much more sophisticated um intellectual defense of welfare reform than peter singer does i mean i i think i think robert is that's why i asked robert to do the debate because i think he's the only person out there these days who is actually Doing something other than you know uh, creating bumper stickers and and T-shirts and and um, and I think that you know in terms of he's really doing hard hard work trying to come up with a justification that makes all of these welfare reforms make sense and he's doing his darndest. <laughs> well, yeah, and animals have a right not to suffer. He maintains which which as I say distinguishes his position from Singer's, which is that 
that animals don't have any rights at all, neither do humans, uh, certainly not moral rights, and that, and that we simply have to sort of give greater weight to animal interests and not suffering, Robert would say, well, no, no, they've got rights not to suffer or at least not to suffer unacceptably. And we just, we've discussed the problems with the, the haziness and the lack of clarity with what constitutes acceptable suffering. But, um, but, but we have to remember, we have to remember we're speaking with someone who thinks animal morally matter less that's the starting point for this guy's argument. That's the starting point That's right. for where That's he's coming right. from, right. and it is a speciesist position to start. Yeah, no, no, from. I agree. I agree, and I, I sort of say that to him yeah. um, at about yeah. thirty-five places in the in the discussion section. I sort of say this is speciesist. I mean, how can you come? How can you maintain that animals that animal life is per se worth less morally? But you know what's really interesting. I and 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 um, I, let me let me finish making the point I was making before, which is that. Um, Robert is trying to come up with a sophisticated justification for welfare reform, but that's really what he's trying to do. I mean, Robert Robert works with, um, uh, and, and, and again, when I say works with, I don't mean to suggest I don't know if he has formal relationships, but he certainly he has a much higher a, a view um, of these uh, animal welfare groups in Britain and in the United States than I do, um, and and um, and so and and he. Um, he looks favorably uh, on on their on their uh, their efforts, um, and and, uh, and 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 whereas I don't, and so I think what he's trying to do is come up with a justification for what groups like PETA or Compassion and World Farming or the Humane Society of the United States or the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals or those sorts of welfarist organizations. He's trying to come up with uh, a theory that makes their their reform measures look okay because. They 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 satisfy they they're incremental change they're incremental moves in his right not to suffer you know it, it, they lead in the direction of the of recognizing the right not to suffer now again I think that that's all crazy and I don't think I don't think that those welfare reforms are doing anything except making people feel more comfortable about about exploitation but but um, but you're right um, Robert is starting off with a position where animal life matters less than human life as a moral matter and what's really interesting Elizabeth is that he keeps he says in several several places in the book he keeps saying well you know you're the, you're the odd guy out here because you know not only does Singer disagree with you but so does Reagan and and uh, and Reagan is a rights theorist, and even Reagan says that animals, you know, that animal life um, is is of lesser moral value. And and it is true that um, you know Reagan, although Reagan has a rights position, Reagan maintains that animals have fewer opportunities for satisfaction than do humans. So so he, Reagan takes the position that if you're sitting uh, in the lifeboat with the certainly with certainly with the normal human, I, you know, I mean, I I, I guess he. He might have a different analysis if he was dealing with uh, a severely cognitively impaired one. I don't know, but but where you're in your if you're sitting in a, in the lifeboat with the normal human and with the dog or a million dogs, you're morally obligated to throw the one dog or the million dogs overboard and 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 to save the life of the human because the human has more opportunities for satisfaction. And the answer is. Who says? <laughs> Who says and why does that – you know, number one, there are two responses to that. Who says? And the second response is, what does it matter? Why does it matter morally? I mean, you know, and, and, and um, you know, I mean, I don't know whether I have more opportunities for satisfaction than the, the dogs who live with us do. I have no idea. Who knows whether you know? I mean, I don't know whether 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 animals have have more or fewer opportunities for satisfaction. But what the hell difference would it make? 
you know, which is why I say if you're sitting on the lifeboat, you know, and you've got to figure out who to, you know, who to throw out, um, you might say, well, look, you know, I understand what death means to the human. I don't understand what death means to the, to the animal. And so, therefore, that's a matter of my limitations. That's not a matter of different moral value. It's a matter of my limitations. Or I might decide I'm going to flip a coin, you know, where, whereas Reagan says we're morally obligated to throw out the million dogs. So, so in a sense, in a sense, what, what you know, Robert is starting his position, Elizabeth, you know, and again, I, I'm, you know, I don't agree with him. You don't agree with him. I don't agree with him either. But, but in fairness to Robert, he's, he's starting his analysis from the position of someone who says, I look at the, at the field of animal ethics and, you know, you're the only guy out there who says that animals have equal moral value and, and not even not even rights theorists like Reagan are saying that. And the answer is, well, that's true. But, but, you know, I, but I disagree with, you know, I mean, I, and I, I have been writing, you know, about my disagreements with Reagan's analysis for, for some years now. And, you know, I think Reagan's analysis is different from Singer's analysis, but I still don't think it goes far enough because it is still speciesist in that it is still, it is still allowing us to draw lines on moral value based, uh, uh, depending on species, and 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 I I don't think that 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 we can do that, and I also think that it's really really important, you know, that that one of the things that that um, other other people who write in this area just don't understand is they seem to think that well, you know, um, we make distinctions. Uh, you know, we assign moral value to cognitive abilities in other contexts, and the answer is yes, we do. We, we do decide that we're going to give the calculus textbook to the to the neighbor's child and not to the dog. But that does not that's not the context in which we're asking the questions of animal ethics. I'm not asking about distributing calculus textbooks. I'm not asking about rights to vote. I'm not asking about rights to go to university. I'm talking about interests in not being treated as a resource. And in that sense, in that sense, my view is all all uh, sentient beings are equal in terms of all of them have a legitimate moral claim that I'm willing to protect with with a right and say that they have a they have a they have an interest that they have an interest in their continued existence. They have an interest in not having all of their fundamental interests, including but not limited to their right to life, their interest in continuing to exist, valued by someone else. And and so and I'm willing to protect that interest with the right. And in that sense, yes, my, my work is 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 unique in that sense because um, how sad. Can you believe it? I can't believe it that you know that um, the 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 only person in uh, supposedly uh, that actually thinks that um, animals have a right not to be property is is yourself. Um, I wanted to say when I was reading the book, I felt it very gratifying because you were talking about. I think when you wrote Rain Without Thunder, it was my position says this or the abolitionist position if you didn't want to say me all the time says this. But in this book, you say, say abolitionists. And I was like, that's us. You know, I'm one of them. It's not just you anymore um, who's saying it. Um, you actually do, you know, um, there is this this phenomenon called the abolitionists who do believe that animals have a right not to be property and understand the property argument and that they, that's the fundamental right, whereas these other guys, they think it's okay to use them. I mean, the, the, if I'm very black and white about it because I don't see the point. I mean, one thing that, that he says that makes me laugh is he says it's not necessary to engage in interminable and probably indeterminable debates about the respective quality of human and animal lives. Well, it wouldn't be necessary if you guys didn't keep bringing it up as a reason justifying their use 
I mean, it, we, we don't really want to try to figure out whether or not, you know, we we just think that they have a right not to be used because they're sentient. So they're the ones complicating things with their speciesist sort of uh, mindset. Well, that, that's that's right. I mean, I think that's right. And also, you have to understand that things have actually gotten a lot worse um, since I, when I wrote Rain Without Thunder, I was dealing with a movement that at least, you know, where I thought the debate was, we're all abolitionists, but some of us think we ought to use welfare reform to get to abolition, which was the position, you know, that was a position I was sort of saying doesn't make any sense, both as a theoretical matter and as a practical matter. Now, uh, a lot of the new welfareists are no longer abolitionists. They are just people who say that, you know, that, that, well, we ought to use fewer animals or, oh, we ought to, you know, we ought to have happy meat or happy dairy or happy eggs or whatever. And they're people who think that we ought to reduce animal suffering, uh, you know, in significant ways, although, you know, to I have no idea. To an acceptable position. Right. To an, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and who gets to judge that? Conveniently, the animals don't get to judge that. It's, it's us. Exactly. And, you know, and, 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 and so I think that in a sense, you know, um, what what the what the debate you know you you basically have most of the most of the large animal organizations are basically promoting some form of happy meat or happy eggs or dairy or whatever and they're looking for even if they talk about veganism they talk about veganism on one side of their institutional mouth and on the other side they're all promoting these happy meat labels and i think that a lot of it has to do with uh, and even those who are talking about veganism they talk about veganism as a way of reducing suffering. So they say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter whether you're eating cage-free eggs or whether you're vegan, you know, as long as you're doing something to reduce suffering. And the answer is no, 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 no. No, veganism is not just about reducing suffering. Veganism is a matter of justice of what we owe to other animals. And it means that, you know, we don't eat them, we don't wear them, we don't use them. Um, and that it, it, you know, it doesn't, it's not just a matter of reducing suffering, it's a matter of fundamental justice. And, you know, Another interesting thing about the book is, you know, Robert talks about my theory of property. And, and again, you know, my, my view is basically that, look, put aside the theoretical stuff, um, you know, because, I mean, I have all sorts of theoretical reasons why I think animal welfare reform is a really bad idea. Let's just look at practicalities. Let's just look at sort of, you know, the real hard empirical practicalities. Animal welfare reform doesn't work, and the reason is it can't work. Why can't it work? Because animals are chattel property, because protecting animal interests costs money. And, and when you spend that money... You are either, you know, you've, you've either got to be able to pass that along to the consumer. So you've either got to have a consumer, you've got to have, you've got to have consumers who care about what what we might call higher welfare products and are willing to pay substantially more for them. Uh, and even in that situation, in the world of, you know, the, the world has changed economically in the past twenty years dramatically. We now have these these, you know, we have things like the European Economic Community and uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement and the General Agreement on Trades and Tariffs and all these sort of regional and international trade agreements that create these supposedly free markets, these, these, arrange, these agreements and these sorts of economic arrangements have changed uh, the, the, the things considerably so that even if you have in you know, location X, you have a group of people, you know, let's say in, 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 in um, I mean, uh, Garner talks about how in England the animal welfare standards are higher um, they, 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 in certain in certain cases, they are marginally higher. He's correct to say that. But then, what happens is, 
if the demand, to the extent that the price goes up, if the demand, if if if, if the demand is there for the lower welfare products, Britain can't stop the import of the lower welfare products from Spain or France or other places in the European Community. So 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 the the lower welfare product comes in, and and you know the result is is that the higher welfare product is put at a competitive disadvantage. So so you know the, this idea. I mean. The, the lack of understanding of fundamental economics on the part of people who promote welfare reform. I, mean, I happen to think that animal welfare reform doesn't really do much except make animal exploitation more efficient. It increases production efficiency. It actually, you know, for example, we got rid of the veal crate or we're getting rid of the veal crate because we think it's an, an inefficient thing to do. If you keep animals tethered in a very small space like that, they get stressed out. They have more veterinary bill, veterinary costs, than they do if you give them a little bit more space. So by by making the welfare move to giving them a bit more space, you're actually increasing your production efficiency because you're decreasing your veterinary costs and things like that. So, and, and there are all sorts of examples like that where animal welfare reform actually increases production efficiency. And, and in those limited uh, in instances where animal welfare reforms have actually decreased production efficiency and increased the price, then to the extent that the consumers want, you know, they demand the lower welfare product, you can't really keep the lower welfare product out. So it doesn't really change markets at all. It doesn't change markets at, it, 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 it doesn't change markets at all, actually. And the reality is it's, you know, it's, it's 2011. We're using more animals now in more horrific ways than at any point in human history. Animal welfare doesn't work, and it's not just a matter of theory. It's a matter of the practical realities. And, and what I find interesting is, is you, know, you have uh, people uh, like Robert uh, you know, saying, well, your position is not realistic. And then he talks about how, he talks about how, how, um, how you can have animals be property, but you're still going to treat them really, really well. And at one point I said to him, you know, what, what universe are you in that, you know, someone's going to be raising animals for food and they're going to treat them the way they would treat their, you know, their beloved family dog? The answer is if they regarded them as their family, you know, the same way they regarded their beloved family dog, they wouldn't be eating them in the first place. So this idea that we can have animals as property and we're going to treat them really super well if any, if anybody's being idealistic and fantasy-like and unrealistic, etc., it's that position, not the position that I am articulating, which is that animal welfare doesn't work. We need to shift the paradigm. In order to shift the paradigm, we have to really generate. Um, you know, we we have we have to we have to uh, 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 look at this as as a demand issue, not as a supply issue, and we have to go after the demand, which is the the demand by consumers for animal products, and we have to build a base of political vegans of people who who rule out, not as a matter of just as a matter of suffering, but as a matter of justice, they rule out animal exploitation. If you had a, if you had a solid core of such people, then you could actually make you could actually make legislative changes that would be meaningful rather than the the laws that are passed now that you know that are not worth the paper they're written on. Exactly, I agree. And you know, the the sad thing is is that um, at one point when you when you point that out. Um, that you know these these welfare reforms are just industry making themselves more efficient, and um, he's like, yeah, I know, but you know it's still good though, and um, that that to me is is was very very sad because but but then I remind myself that I'm that this person really doesn't consider that non-human animals have uh, any real um, intrinsic value. 
and they don't even have a right to autonomy. So right. that reminds me when I read something like that, because I think he even says it. He says, well, I'm not necessarily comfortable being a um, working with industry being, if, if, if working with industry and being their partner as such, and he, he doesn't acknowledge that, but is, is helping the animals, then then what's wrong with it? And, they, and it's an utter failure to actually even comprehend the actual real sort of, I mean, even I get it, you know, and I'm so not an economist and i'm really not very sophisticated um thinker about these kinds of things but even I oh yes you are yes you are yes you are no i mean look i think i think uh the bottom line is that he when he says something like well i agree that a lot of these animal welfare reforms make production more economically efficient but they're still good for animals the the the, the response i have to that is that may be true and you know what you don't need to put resources into persuading industry to do those things because industry is economically rational and once they figure out once they accept that that a particular reform is economically efficient they're going to implement it as a matter of fact the thing that will keep them from implementing it is if it's being demanded by animal welfare people then they will sometimes you know protract they'll 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 sometimes engage in a dance with with the animal welfare people i think that's what's going on now with controlled atmosphere killing i mean the reality is controlled atmosphere killing is much more economically efficient than than the electric stunning which is which is uh still used throughout the poultry yeah, that industry. was What's very happened? hard to read actually i found that yeah, it was, very difficult. it was it was hard to write too. to write it like, yes must yeah, have. it was hard to write and and so you know i mean you're you're seeing that now you're seeing that that poultry that you know that, that that poultry producers are now switching to control the atmosphere killing because they're accepting that it's cheaper it, it's a cheaper way um, for them to 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 kill poultry, particularly if they're if they're large producers. And I, I you know in another few years, I mean you know in the not too distant future, my guess is is that stunning will will be replaced just about completely by by a controlled atmosphere killing. But that's going to happen not because the animal people. That's going to happen because it's economically it's the efficient thing to do. And you know what's happening right now is industry. Remember something: factory farming started like in the 1950s, and it is only now in the you know the 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 first part of the 21st century that economists, agricultural economists, are figuring out that um, that certain aspects of intensive agriculture and certain things that they've been doing are not economically efficient because these are fair you know these 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 practices haven't been around a long time um and you know if you look at the difference in farming between the end of the 19th century and the end of the 20th century i mean it's incredibly dramatic and i mean there's a huge shift there's a huge change in i mean you know you know from the from the 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 smaller the smaller you know uh commercial uh, and, and family farm situations to the factory farm situations. Now, let me say, there was an enormous amount of suffering and, and horrible death and hideousness on the family farm. So, you know, on the, on the nicest, the nicest family farm was a hellhole for animals. Um, but, you know, but, but now we've gone to this mechanized system and, and, uh, you know, the thinking when people were designing the system in the 1950s was that, well, you know, if we can put 10 animals in a barn and make a $10 profit, if we put 100 animals in the same space, we can cram 100 animals in the same space, we'll make $100. And that's great if we've got, you know, it, because because if it costs us the same, you know, if we have to use, the, if we use the same space that we're producing, that we're getting the $10 
you know, profit from. If we can get $100 profit, well, that's just great, isn't it? And the answer is nobody stopped to think. Well, you know, you load 100 animals in the, in the same space, you're going to have stress, and the stress is going to have um, – uh, uh, is going to present its own set of, set of opportunity costs, and that it's going to cause the animals to get ill and things like that. And so you're going to have costs. And now, now um, you know, agricultural economists are saying things like, well, you know, the, you know uh, gestation crates, they're not really good. You know, you can use these things called electronic sow feeding, which is a much more efficient way. Way of dealing with with um, uh, 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 the gestation crate, the, the situation that was sought to be addressed by the gestation crate. Same thing with veal crates. Same thing with you know that that basically will get a better product. If we treat the animals marginally better, we'll be able to sell a better product and we'll actually save some money. And, and so when Robert says to me, well, you think that's a bad idea? The answer is, hey, look, if industry wants to, be, to do things which are economically efficient and they have, a, they have a marginal benefit for animals, that's just dandy. My question is, why is the animal movement spending all of its time and resources on these things, which industry is going to do anyway? <laughs> That's what drove me nuts because when when he kept saying, um, you know, you would go actively against these things. You would oppose these things. And I'm saying – what what you do is you you what well what I do now as well and other people are starting to do is 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 if somebody asks us or so, if somebody we see someone doing that we'll say why are you spending your time doing that when you could be spending your time doing this it's not that we're going to industry in fact we don't even really talk to industry because we understand it's a consumer based thing we don't go to industry and say don't implement that welfare reform industry we we're just saying why are you guys spending all your time and resources doing it but i know you've said that so many times but i don't feel like he gets it because he keeps saying you oppose it you oppose it and i'm like no you don't understand it robert garner um we oppose um animal uh, supposed representatives of animals um spending time and resources working with industry that's a very big difference and and um, so he almost tried to do the same old fallback position that tries to paint us out to be the bad guys that, well, you want the animals to stay suffering because it makes you look better and it helps your political position. And that's not true at all. And also, I, I agree with you completely that, look, if we if as a movement we just we just take our efforts away from dealing with the industry directly and we talk to the consumers which is what we try to do and say, go vegan, go vegan, go vegan, and people start to go vegan, industry is going to try their best to win back that market and they're going to figure Absolutely. out that the reason why people are going vegan is because they recognize that it's wrong to use animals and there's some people are vegan because they want to reduce suffering some people um like um i'm trying to think of because robert, robert garner eats cheese every now and then and peter singer is an you know a, a flexible vegan but you know either way industry is going to see that the, the reason that people are vegan is because of concerns about animal welfare to some extent although people like us it's it's a fundamental you know recognition of justice but they're going to try to get that market back because they're going to be losing their market so they will do things above and beyond the cost efficient things maybe but either way that's i just don't understand how people don't see it and then and then how they have the audacity to suggest that we are actually trying to spend our time and resources physically and and, and politically opposing animal imp- supposed improvements and that's not even what we're saying so it's very annoying to me because it misrepresents to a de- terrible degree the entire fundamental point and the point is you can't make it any clearer so where are they getting this from you know where, where i don't know they- well look i mean you know i think i mean robert you know robert is is um you know he's a professor he's not he's not um as far as I know, he doesn't have any formal relationship with any of these large organizations. And so I think he, he does – he is trying to call it the way he sees it 
in an intellectually honest way. That's always been my impression of Robert. I've known him for many years, and um, I think he is trying to do that. But I agree with you. I mean, you know, he he has this. He's he he seems to think that I spend my time sort of trying to. Um, Talk to pig farmers. Keep them in the cages. Right, right, exactly. I mean, I mean, what I'm trying to do is get people to go vegan. Um, to, and then what happens is the welfareists come to me and say, "Why are you doing this? Why aren't you supporting our gestation crate campaign? Why aren't you?" I mean, I get emails all the time. Will you please support this campaign and that campaign? And I say, "Look, I don't do that sort of thing. I do something else. If you want to do what you want to do, you do what you want to do. I don't think it works. I think it's counterproductive. But if you want to do it, do it." And then they say, "Oh no, no, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're." They characterize it as if I'm going around to the farmer saying, please keep them in the gestation crates. The answer is no, I'm not. I'm just saying I think the gestation crate, camp- gestation crate campaign is ridiculous. On multiple levels, it's ridiculous. Just, um, yeah. And anybody listening, listen to the debate with Eric Marcus. That's where I, I myself learned about even just the – I learned so much just about – and there's a gestation crate campaign in New Zealand that happened. Um, we sort of follow behind a few years and I – already knew um, and I sort of predicted these things from listening to the debate with Eric Marcus I was like well if it's anything like the campaign that um, they were talking about in the states then this is going to happen that's going to happen and it's not going to be implemented and it's going to be put off and, and sure enough all of those terrible things came true and I wasn't celebrating like yeah the pigs are still in the cages I'm happy I was just trying to say to people you see you see now you know let's Let's start a vegan campaign, you know? Yeah, but you see, you remember something, though. These organizations are businesses, and and so, you know, whatever whatever the organization you're talking about, they want to send stuff out to people and say, we've got this campaign, contribute to it. So they want to send – they want to send – they want to send their their fundraising stuff to people who are eating animal products, and they want to get them to say, "Oh yeah, this is really terrible." I'll I'll give you you know X dollars, and so what they're doing is you know they're 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 these are these are businesses these are businesses which function by packaging and selling single issue campaigns, and 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 you know and and what they're they're trying to do is avoid confronting the vegan issue because the people they're trying to raise the money from are not by and large vegan. So the question is, all right, fine, what do you do with those people? Do you try to educate them about veganism or do you try to sort of get as much money as you can from them for not, in terms of getting them to purchase your non-vegan single-issue campaign? And because these organizations have employees and because you know they get lots of employees and because they they need to have office space and photocopiers and and you know pay benefits and things like that, they basically say, well, you know, gee, you know, we wish everybody was vegan, but they're not. Uh, and so therefore, what we're going to do is sell these you know package and sell these single issue campaigns. It's how these organizations function. You're absolutely right. And I want to just say that you know we when we started criticizing them. Um, the organization in New Zealand is called SAFE. They yeah. saying you're promoting free range. Stop promoting humane torture. Stop promoting free range. We're not promoting free range. We're not promoting free range, they said. And they actually even – they stopped actively saying purchase it. They said don't buy this pork. And we're like it's still right. the same message. And guess what? Somebody inadvertently told me who – and I did not hear this from – the people I know in the organization because they would die rather than tell me this. Somebody else um, that I met when I was doing my street store was like, it was so sad, wasn't it, about about how they got all those thousands of emails from people asking them, please tell us where we can buy free range. 
because they're, they're saying they're not promoting free range and then they, they actually themselves didn't know what to do because all, their message was that. Their message was buy free range and even they couldn't deal with it until the consumers were like, where can we buy this free range? Where can we buy it? You're telling us to buy the free range. Where is it? And um, and I'm like, and I'm just like, now do you get it? But no, they, they've moved on to a, a battery egg campaign now. Another single Yeah, well, campaign. I mean, but look, look. Um, you know, they do the same thing here. They say, well, we're not supporting happy meat or happy eggs or whatever. Uh, we, we, you know, we really talk about uh, vegetarianism and veganism. Now, as you know, I don't see a distinction between meat and dairy products. And so therefore, I don't really think vegetarianism is a coherent position. But they say, well, you know, we talk about vegetarianism and veganism and we don't really promote happy eggs or happy meat. And the answer is that is nonsense. You know, all of the large organizations here are promoting labels and giving awards to these companies that promote these happy meat labels. Well, I don't really care. You can say all you want to your blue in the face that I'm not promoting a happy meat label. But when you give an award to uh, a supermarket chain that has a happy meat label and you give them an award and you say they have the highest welfare standards in the industry and stuff and you give them an award, then you are saying to the public that's a morally good thing to do. And I don't care what any of these organizations say. It is nonsense. It is, it is complete duplicity to say that they're not promoting it. They sure as hell are. I agree. And the sad thing is, like I say, like in New Zealand, this group um, didn't give any awards and didn't promote any labels. The SPCA here has the Freedom Food label, but yeah. SAFE doesn't promote any labels. But it doesn't matter. Their entire message was buy free range, and they didn't want to face it. You know? yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, I agree with you. Whether you're promoting the label of a particular company or a supermarket chain or whether you're saying just buy free range or, or whether you're saying don't boycott, buy intent. Yeah, don't yeah, buy. You know, boycott, boycott, yeah. you know, boycott. What does boycott, that mean? Uh, Factory farm stuff. What the hell does that mean? Exactly. You know, I mean, boy, I mean, I mean, you know, it, it, look. It's so it's so uh, self 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 um deny serving. Yeah, it's yeah, self serving. It's totally self serving. But speaking yeah. of um, thank you so much for helping me with the book. I still am. I still f am quite depressed actually that um, that t t what you've what we've actually sort of uncovered here that the that the movement is now being i mean at least back when you were at rain without thunder people were ostensibly saying they wanted abolition and that animal use was wrong and now we're dealing with with actually blatant speciesism um where yes. people are that's very sad, sad to me but the good news is that the abolitionists is an entity it's not just you anymore and there is um more and more people coming out but speaking of spe single issue campaigns unless there's anything more you wanted to talk about with regard to the book before we change the subject no, I do. I do think. I think that point you made at the end is right. In that um, things have changed a lot. In that, um, when you said we're now moving in a more speciesist direction, I think that's right. I think what's happened in the past fifteen years is that movement's gone from being a movement that, um, at least as a as a as a rhetorical matter endorsed abolition and talked about you know wa wanting abolition and then you divided the world into the people who wanted abolition and and saw the means to that as being uh veganism and I was in that group and then the other group of people who saw the means to the end of abolition as welfare reform and given uh, and, and you know and, and so that was the world in 19 in the early 1990s um What's happened in the past 15 years is I, I honestly believe Singer's views about animals not having an interest in life, I believe that's taken hold in a very, 
very strong way in the United States and in Britain. Uh, and I, you know, from what I've seen in New Zealand and Australia, it's the same sort of thing. Um, I believe that that idea that animals don't care that we use them, they only care how we use them. I that that, that as an empirical matter, animals don't have an interest in uh, continuing to live. That it's like saying animals don't have an interest in getting a calculus textbook. Animals don't have an interest in continuing to live. Uh, I think I think that idea is now uh, has now become explicitly accepted by most of the folks who are running these organizations. And I think that that's had a most detrimental effect. But anyway, you wanted to talk about single-issue campaigns. All right. That was part one of the interview with Gary Francione. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for part two, where we go on to talk about single-issue campaigns, amongst other things. Stay tuned. <laughs> 